After last night, I thought, man, I just killed the service last night. I was, I was, there had so much information, and we were trying to cover a lot, and I looked at everybody, and you're like, where is he talking about? So um, we were teaching the same thing, but I just, I did a bunch of uh, um, cut and paste this morning, so we'll, we'll see how it goes, so just be patient as we walk through it. We are closing today a four-week series that we've been doing, a little different than what we normally do on Sunday mornings, where we work through a text, but we've been kind of re-educating ourselves on um, paying attention to God's speaking voice and how to understand that voice. So we looked at general revelation, God's, God's way that he reveals himself to all people in all places and all times, um, just through the, uh, a variety of ways, but particularly through creation, how God speaks. And Romans tells us that people can actually see God's invis- indivisible and invisible attributes to the very things that he's created. And then we moved into the fact that God has a, clarifies his voice for us, and he brings it in primarily through the Holy Spirit, but also through God's written word. And we looked at that a bit and understood what our church believes about um, the Bible that we have in our hands. We looked at stuff about translations, that we have a reliable text that we can actually read. And uh, the thing comes down to, when we read it, how do we understand what he's saying? How do we know what, as we read it, some of the things are pretty evident, some of the things that we struggle with. So how do we understand his written word, and that is where we are going this morning as we're talking about this issue of interpreting God's word as we um, work through it. Next week, um, we're going to kind of practice a little bit what we've been talking about, which is God reveals himself and we respond in worship. And so we're going to practice that next week. I'll give you an assignment about that at the end of the message this morning. Just so you know where we're going after that, we're going to go into the book of Luke a little bit more traditionally, the way we work through text. We're going to actually take um, a number of characters um, out of the book of Luke, individuals, and each week we'll be looking at a different individual and unpackaging their story um, in preparation, moving ahead towards Good Friday and uh, a Resurrection Sunday at the end of March. So we will be in the book of Luke several sections um, after, uh, after next week is over. Um, in your bulletin, there's an outline and some notes. There are some verses to go through. We normally have a text and we're reading through it. I'm really kind of teaching some um, techniques for understanding God's Word today. So those verses in there, although I will not read them this morning, they are there because they talk about the importance of understanding God's Word, of getting insight into it, of studying God's Word and examining it for ourselves. So those verses are there. There's some resources as well that you can read on. In case I come out at the end of this morning, you're going, I don't know what he was trying to say. There's the books. Pick up a book and read it for yourself. Um, I do want to add one book on there. You can put that up on the screen. It's called Read the Bible for a Change. It's by Ray Lubeck, and you could pick up that as well. It's similar to the one I suggested last week called Reading the Bible for All It's Worth. This is a similar approach. It's a real easy read. It's pretty short, but it really gives you some really simple handles for when you pick up God's Word and you're trying to examine what it says, just some helpful guidelines on how to walk through it so that we get on the other side of that. We actually can say, I know what God was trying to say in this text today and what he's trying to say to me. So it's called Read the Bible for a Change by Ray Lubeck. We can encourage you to pick that up as well. Let me pray as we uh, walk into this. Father, thank you for this morning, for music, for worship, um, for one another, for the uh, glory that we see around us as we walk in our day um, for your written word, um, your actual speaking voice put into print for us. Um, give us insight in how to um, hear it well, that it uh, brings about the change that you want to accomplish in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So we live in a world that's full of uh, lots of lies and things that we can't trust. Um, 
We've been through the things over the last weeks of uh, football players that are dating people that don't exist. Um, we have uh, famous athletes who have been lying for a lot of years. Um, you kind of wonder, who do we trust these days? I saw in the paper yesterday that Subway Sandwiches has publicly gone and apologized that their uh, Subway footlong sandwiches um, apparently maybe not 12 inches long. They may be more like 11 inches long. So Subway even has been lying to us forever. <laughs> Actually, if those things, I, get, I like the, um, the uh, teriyaki onion sauce ones. They're really gooey. You just squish it anyways. You can make, it'll stretch out as long as you want. So um, anyways, who can you trust these days, right? Uh, if we can't trust Subway. The fact is we have looked at the fact that we believe that we have God's inerrant, verbally inspired word of God before us. And if we trust it and it's God's very words, we want to do whatever we can to make sure we understand what God is saying through it. We want to get it. We want to hear his voice clear in a world where we don't hear very many things that are clear. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. When he speaks to his word, we want to hear what he has to say because it makes a difference to us. So today we're looking at this final step here it's called interpreting God's word. A couple things in review. Um, to understand God's word, four things. Number one, ask. We looked at this before. Ask the Holy Spirit to show God's word to your heart. He's our teacher. Um, nobody else is our teacher. The Holy Spirit is the teacher of God's word. He takes God's word and he brings it to bear on our hearts. Um, and so we, we come before him and say, ask the Holy Spirit, says, show me what you've got here. Show me, let me hear God's voice in this word. Show it to me. And that also brings us under saying he's the one who we come under authority of. When he shows us what God is saying, we're submitting ourselves to it in doing that act. You know, if Jesus were to call me and tell me that he wanted to meet me down at um, Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts or whatever, and I would not arrive with an agenda of what I was going to talk to Jesus about. I would not do that. I would be thinking, what does he want to tell me? <laughs> what is he, what, why is he calling me? And why does he want to share with me? And I would go ready to say, I would just sit there going, so what? <laughs> what is it? I mean, I'd be eager. I'd be scared. I'd be wondering what he's going to share. I wouldn't go with an agenda. And so when we ask the Holy Spirit to open up God's word, we want to make sure that we are ready to really hear what God has to say to it, not what we bring to it. So I'm going to go open God's word to find an answer for something, or I'm going to prove something or show something. We don't do that. We open God's word and say, Holy Spirit, show me what you, God wants for me today. Show me what's here. I want to be ready to hear your voice. Second of all, we read it. We talked about that last week. Just read it and read it and read it and read it. I encourage you, before you read what everybody else has to say about a text and do all the studying, the things that we'll talk about this morning, important as they are, read it for yourself first. Trust the Holy Spirit for a while to begin to work your heart and bring that text to bear on your own heart. And he's inside of you, if you know the Lord, and he can bring his word to you. So just read it. And like I said last week, if that's all we get to, that part of it, it's going to change us. We're going to be moving closer to being like Jesus. The third part of that is interpretation, which I will um, talk about this morning. And the last part we will review again at the end of this morning is application. Once I understand what God has to say to me, then what am I going to do with it? What do we do with what God has to say to us? So ask, read, interpret and then apply. So interpretation. Interpretation. What does it mean to interpret the text? And by the way, that is not just for scholars. It is for all of us who know the Lord to open up his word and try to figure out what is God trying to say in it. Interpretation is called exegesis. 
All it means is we're trying to find out what does the text mean, and specifically, the step we want to accomplish is figuring out what, when, when uh, uh, the, like the Romans, when they received the letter of Romans, or when the uh, people at Thessalonica received Thessalonians, what did they hear God saying through that letter? We want to figure out what the original people that got that letter, what did they hear? What was God trying to speak to them? That's what we want to understand. Then we can begin to say, so what is God sharing to me? Because we need to understand the text in the place and time that it was written and to who it was written to and what God is trying to communicate. When we figure that out, then we can say, now what do I pull out of that? What is God trying to say to me here and now and in this time? So interpretation or exegesis is, is when the original recipients of the letter or book or whatever it was read it, what did they understand it to mean? What did they understand it to mean? So I take myself out of it originally and just trying to find out what was God communicating to them at that time. And that's a hard thing for us to do because there's some bridges, some gaps that we have to cross because this book was written a long time ago. Um, and so there's some bridges we have to get across. There's four of them. The language barrier is a different language. So we have translations to help us. But even then, words had different meanings then. So we can't... You know, the way words change these days, every year they change. You just can't take what we think a word means and plop it in the text, and it's going to make sense. It might not. So we have to cross a language barrier. We have to cross a culture barrier. The scriptures were written to a people who existed and lived in a completely different time from us. Um, their whole social norms, everything were different. We've got to figure out how does that fit in before we can figure out what to do with us. So um, we have to understand what was going on culturally for us to understand what was being said in the text. Um, geography, it's written in a different place. Um, the Mideast, people think different there. Um, when we start reading letters and where they're sent to, we need to understand where they were going, what was happening at that time. So there's a geographical barrier, and then lastly, a historical barrier. Just um, life was different, and things were going on. If we don't understand the things that were taking place, we don't have a context for understanding why it was being written. And so we have these barriers to cross. And uh, the question is, how do we cross those barriers so we can understand what God was saying to them, and then out from that, I can begin to say, so what is God saying to me? What is God saying to our church? So I'm just going to share with you uh, the, the process I go through. Um, it's, it's the most common one um, to, to walk through in terms of how to understand what God was saying. I'm going to share with you some different ways of approaching the word um, interpreting at the end of this, but I'm going to walk you through the way I do it so you understand how I approach it. Um, it's called the grammatical historical method. Um, basically, it's, it's, it's not nearly as complicated as it sounds, the grammatical historical method. Um, the word hermeneutics, um, we don't use it very often, but it's coming in several different things, but in the case we're going to use it this morning, the hermeneutics are the approach we use to interpreting Scripture. And there's several different hermeneutics out there, different ways people approach the scriptures. I approach it from a grammatical, historical hermeneutic is what it's called, a certain approach to doing that. It was used by the early church fathers. It was prominent among the reformers during the Reformation. Um, I like it because it's an approach that keeps me stucking with the actual text and keeps myself out of it as much as possible so I don't keep jumping into it and putting my own things in there. Um, it's... Uh, it, um, honors the inerrancy of scripture, um, and it kind of keeps us from some speculation. But let me walk you through it, and, um, and then we will talk about some other ones. There's three parts to it, historical, literary form, and the grammatical construction. So grammatical, 
historical method. So there's uh, three parts. Let me just share what those are. And then I'm actually going to just take a verse and we're going to walk through it, figure out how to do it um, together. So historically, what does that mean? To look at a text historically just means where was it written, what was going on at the time, what's the place, what's the setting, what's the date, those kinds of things. Um, Background, place, the author. Whenever we do a book, what's the first thing we do the first week usually? We get the background, right? Who wrote the book? When was it written? Why did the person write it? What was going on? in the country at that time so that would help us understand it. That is what this is about. Historical background is just looking at who it was written to, who actually wrote the book, um, where it was written, the date, those kinds of things, the background and what was happening at that time. Literary form is the second part of this, the part of the step that we take in this interpretation. And that just means what kind of form of writing is it? The Bible is not just one form. We looked at that before. There's poetry. There's history, there's narrative, there's um, doctrinal statements, there's um, all these uh, metaphors and things that are mixed in with it. Um, There's letter, there's history, there's prophecy. And we read them differently. And if we don't understand the form that it's being written in, we're going to make mistakes on interpreting it. So if I'm in a passage and it's poetic and it's talking about um, my bride being like a tree, um, she's not really a tree, right? Because we all understand that. It's, it's poetry. There's, there's, a, there's a picture here. But it's amazing how people will look at different passages and they'll, they'll get a metaphor or a picture like that and they'll take it and they'll transplant it to another place where the same word is used and say it means the same thing there. It doesn't. Um, You've got to look at the form. We read poetry different than we read history. When we read a narrative, for instance, Acts or 1 Samuel or some of those, they're just, it's telling us a story. It's telling us what happened. We have to understand that we're reading about what happened. Maybe we're not reading about what we're supposed to do because it's a narrative, so we have to understand those kinds of things. So we want to understand what kind of um, form it is in so we don't um, get confused about what's being spoken. And then the third part is the grammatical construction. All of the English teachers here will love this part of it. Um, it's basically going back to school again, and it's reading well. All it means is reading well, how to read well. It's looking at the words. What do they mean? How are those words put together? How are the sentences constructed? How do all the sentences fit together to a paragraph? What's the bigger picture? What's the flow of the argument there? It's just trying to look at examining the words and seeing what they say and what the text says and the context in which they're said. Um, Words, sentence, construction, and context. Does that make sense? Look at the background, date, who wrote it, where it was written, what was going on at the time, what kind of... uh, what kind of writing is it? Is it a letter? Is it narrative? Um, is it doctrine? What, what is that about? And then start examining how it's written. Actually pick the sentences apart and the text and the paragraphs to understand how is the flow of thought go. You can pull a phrase out of the Bible, and we could believe anything we want. There's, there's a little chunk you can take out of all over the place. We could believe anything we wanted, and the grammatical construction keeps us from doing that. It tells us this is, there's, I'm writing this in a certain way for a certain reason. It's communicating something. So let me try to walk us through this um, briefly. And I did not do this last night, but it's going to take uh, Revelation chapter 1. And I'm going to put it up on the, the screen here, the first, uh, first verse 1, verse 2. You won't be able to see it very well because it's small, but you can open your Bibles up. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1, and I think I skipped 2 and did 3. And I'm just going to give you, a, if I were to take this, I'm not going to give it all to you, but some pieces of it. If I were to take that verse, what would I do with it as I read it? Assuming that I've asked the Holy Spirit to show me something. 
Assuming that I've read it and read it and read it, um, I'm ready to hear what God has to say about it. Um, what do I begin to do with it when I'm trying to understand it? Well, um, remember, we've got to go through the historical, the literary form, and the grammatical construction. So historically, um, what, we have to figure out what was, where was this written, who wrote it, and those kind of things. It actually tells us here in this section, it says that um, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It was communicated it by his angel to his servant John. I've discovered in this, John wrote the book, but it came through some other people. But first of all, who's John? Who's this guy? So we look at John. You get books. You find that John was the, one of the disciples, and you discover actually that he was exiled onto an island called Patmos. In other words, he's a prisoner. He's writing some churches we find out later. There's seven churches he's writing to. And those churches, he was actually kind of like their pastor. And so here their pastor has been exiled to an island. He's getting old, and he's writing them a book that, 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 that affects how I look at the book. I'm thinking, what were they thinking when they got this from him? They were probably ready to hear. Um, it, was, it was their bishop or their pastor that's writing to them, and he's being kind of imprisoned on this island with no place to go. I want to know when it was written, which is actually one of the issues of Revelation. Was it written before Jerusalem got destroyed, or was it written way towards the end of the first century? And that affects how we understand the book. So we begin to look at those things, and there's so many resources out there to get that information from. You can go and dig it around and try to find out, so what was going on? And you might even start going back. It doesn't even say in this verse, but I'm thinking, so it was written, what was happening, and we discovered these seven churches. What was happening in those seven churches? What was happening in their lives? And why would they want to even hear from John about those things? So you start looking at the background of the book. Um, it's a letter, uh, the literary form. It's, it's a letter. We discover that Revelation is what? A prophecy, right? But if you, dis- if you start reading it, you discover that this doesn't sound like a prophecy, does it? It sounds like a letter. It sounds like somebody's writing a letter to somebody else. And we discover that he's actually writing a letter to seven churches. And the first few chapters of Revelation are actually... This letter, he's writing to these churches. Then he jumps into this prophecy stuff. It changes. So I'm not going to read this like a prophecy in the beginning. I'm just going to read this as an introduction to a letter, which is what it is. So I'm going to take it at face value. I'm not going to try to think, what's he saying by this? And what's the real meaning here? What's the metaphor behind this? And what's, what's he predicting? There isn't any of that here. This is just an introduction to a letter. So I'm going to read it like an introduction to a letter and take it at face value. And then we begin to look at... Um, the uh, grammatical construction of the, uh, the verse. So when I, when I read through this, I start going through, I look at the revelation. My first thought is revelation. What's revelation? What does that word mean? Um, the book is called Revelation. I even capitalize it in my version. So why is that capitalized anyways? And I'm going to wonder, what does revelation mean? Revelation is unfolding. It's an unfolding or disclosing. So remember I talked about you get a concordance, a book or online, and you look up the word revelation, it's going to tell you um, all the other places in Scripture where it's used. It's even going to tell you how to go to the back of the book and find out what the word actually means and if it's, it has more than one meaning, what those meanings are. And so I'm going to dig around. I'm going to figure out what does it mean when it says there's a revelation here. And then I read through it, discover it's of Jesus Christ. So construction-wise, the book is a revelation, a disclosing of who? It's of Jesus. The of word tells me something. It's important. I'm going to mark it down. This is Jesus' revelation. He's the author here, really. He's the one who's writing this. He's sharing something. So suddenly I'm perking up. This is not just Paul or John writing. This is Jesus sharing something. I've discovered that. So it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It says, which God gave him. Well, my question is, well, who is him referring to? Who is it? 
It's Jesus. It refers back to Jesus. So that's, that's English structure. It just goes back to the next thing. You're going to look it up, and it refers back to Jesus. So I'm going, okay, I've got this. Jesus unfolding something, and it gave to him. The him refers to Jesus. And by the way, that's important. Their pronouns and things get used all over, and people will apply them to places they don't belong. And it's just not good reading skills. They'll, they'll use the word him, and they'll say, or it, and they'll say, it refers back to this, and they'll go back like a chapter before, when it really it was just the phrase before, and we get mixed up. So it's just reading well. Who does him refer to? It's to show his bondservants. So I think, okay, go back to the historical part. Who is the bondservants, by the way? Who are they? Well, we find out there's these churches, or seven churches, that he's going to reveal to. The things which must soon, other versions will say, shortly take place. That, that raises a flag to me. What does that mean when it says it's going to happen soon? I thought Revelation happens still in the future. It hasn't happened yet. What's that about? So what does the word shortly mean? I might circle that and write a little note saying, figure out what it means by shortly or soon. And I'm going to look it up, and I'm going to find there's some different opinions about that. I'm going to study figuring out, gosh, what does that mean? Does that mean it already happened? Does that mean it's going to happen before John even died? Does that mean, and if it hasn't happened, why are we allowed, why are we here 2,000 years later, and this stuff hasn't happened yet, and it said it was going to happen soon? What's going on with that? That's, uh, I'm just taking a note of the word. And then he says, blessed is he, wait, wait, what's blessed mean? That's another one. What is blessed? Well, blessed means I've been given something good. Well, is that really what it means? So circle it, and then you look it up. What does the word blessed mean? Where else does it get used, by the way? The Sermon on the Mount, right? Well, is it the same as the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I don't know, so I'm going to look that up, see if it's the same word. Um, sometimes we'll take a word, like in the Old Testament, like the word wisdom in Proverbs, and the people will take that and apply it to wisdom in James. It's not the same idea. There's two different ideas, same word. Two different ideas. So does it mean the same thing? And I'm going to kind of dig in that. There's a lot to do there, isn't there, to, to find those things out. Um, blessed is he. Okay, now who is the he again? I'm going to, I'm going to think, this, who is he? Well, it's, I think it's the bond servants, maybe. Um, that seems like where it goes back to, but I'm going to figure out where does that go back to. Some of you guys like, di- how many like diagrams? Anybody? You can do little circles and arrows there to point to where it goes. It's, it's kind of fun. You can draw. You can use colors, whatever you want to do. Um, blessed is he, and what do we do? We read it, they hear it, and then they heed it, give heed to it. We talked about this when we went through the book of Revelation. Well, what's the question? What does it mean to read it? I think I get that one. What does it mean to hear it? And what does it mean to heed it? And how are those words differently? Does hear it just mean I heard it because some guy read it out loud? Or does hearing mean something else? And you actually discover if you read up about it, hearing means it comes in here and it sinks into the heart. It's a hearing that penetrates the heart. There's other places in Scripture that use the same word. And what does it mean to heed? Well, we're going to do heeding means there's action to it. I don't just pay attention, but a paying attention that results in action. There's all sorts of resources out there that will help us understand that's what the word really means. So, blessed are the ones who read and hear it and heed the words. And then you've got this word prophecy. Well, what's that about? And by the way, there's several different meanings to the word prophecy in the New Testament. It gets used. There's several different words that all get translated prophecy. So which word is it? And there's helpful resources out there to discover what it is. And these things which are written in it for the time is near. Oh, we get back to that again. It's near. So how does near relate to soon and shortly take place? Um, All those kinds of things. So um, what I do when I do something like that, I, I just take a piece of paper. I like graph paper. And I just start writing out questions. What does this word mean? Um, who is, where does this point to? I don't get this line. Um, why am I reading this if this already took place? You know, what's the benefit to me? Or did it not take place? 
And I begin to ask those kinds of questions. And then the things I know for sure, I write them down. And the things I don't know for sure, which are most of the things, I circle them. And then I begin to go back and start looking for some help and getting answers to those things. That's what it's about. Background, who wrote it, what's going on with John, where is it taking place, what's happening with the people, what kind of form is it so I'm not getting confusing. Um, by the way, just a caution, um, narrative writing, we have to be careful about um, bringing out a doctrine from narrative. So the book of Acts, for instance, is a narrative. And it's telling us what happened, what people did. It's very easy to pull that forward out of there and say, we're supposed to do the same thing. Sometimes we're supposed to, sometimes we're not. So, if, for instance, they had a, the, the, the widows weren't getting their food, and so the disciples said, we, we don't have time for this, so we're going to bring some people in. And they, they get seven men, right, who are full of the Holy Spirit to take care of that. Are we supposed to have seven men who take care of tables? Is that, is that what it's telling us? Or is it, no, we're supposed to figure out a way to resolve problems in the church by expanding leadership, perhaps. Um, there are churches who will have seven deacons because Acts has seven, maybe, deacons in that passage. But that's, it's a narrative. It's not necessarily telling us to do that. It's describing what the church did. So that's, a, that's an example of where the literary form can um, be important for us. Anyways, we, history, literary form, grammatical construction. How is a sentence constructed? What do the words mean? And then beyond that, we want to look at, it doesn't apply to this passage quite as much, but um, we do it, we, we look at a text, but we want to look at what's around the text. It's called context. What's going on in this passage? And then the water count, what's going on in the whole letter? And then how does it fit into all scripture? So we just kind of spread out in terms of understanding of where the passage um, fits in. For those of you who like uh, sentence diagramming, is there anybody here who enjoys diagramming sentences? See, there are some awesome people here. Um, I'll tell you, it is a great tool for understanding God's word. It does not answer every question. It helps get, help us understand thought processes. So put your hands up again. Okay, find those people, and they'll show you how to do it, okay? A few guidelines, um, and these will not be up on the um, screen. I'm just going to list them for you. Just a couple of guidelines to uh, keep us on track here. And then I'm going to share a couple of different hermeneutics. One, take language in its usual sense. God, the Bible was written for people at a certain place and a certain time. When they got the letter and they read it, guess what? They understood it. It wasn't some, God wasn't trying to, to um, mess them up or confuse them. He wrote to them so they could understand it. So when it's written, take it in the way it's meant. Don't, um, don't try to think that there's always something that's being hidden from us there. Just take of reading in the sense that it comes across, the usual sense it ought to be written in. Um, and if you've ever been talking to somebody and you're thinking, what did they mean by that? You know? And usually you ask them, they're going, I just meant what I said. It was just exactly, I didn't, there was nothing hidden behind my words. It's just exactly what I said. And that's usually the case with scripture. It's just there for us to see and to read. Second of all, don't lose track of the bigger picture and the flow of argument. When we get focused on little phrases and verses um, and words, it's important. But we can lose track of the bigger picture, and we do that, we lose the heart of what God was trying to communicate. So keep the bigger picture in mind. Let Scripture interpret Scripture before going someplace else. So sometimes we're not sure what something means. Well, there's another place in the Bible that will tell us exactly what it means. So let Scripture interpret itself before we try to go someplace else for an answer. Um, don't forget that there is an aspect of progressive revelation. What that means is the Old Testament began to unfold things for us, 
and they get unfolded more and more as we come to the New Testament. So uh, we don't get the full picture necessarily out of, for instance, the Old Testament. There's more to come, so understand it as you read. Um, interpret the unclear things with the clear things, or the implicit with the explicit. There's some stuff that's just, I don't get it. It's just kind of foggy here. So get it clarified with the things that you know are clear. And by the way, if it still doesn't become clear, perhaps God just wanted to leave it unclear. And in those cases, leave it unclear. There's some mystery there. Um, and the Bible is going to be silent on something, so let it be silent, because that's what God's intention. Just leave it be and be okay with that. All right. Let's see, we already did that. See, my notes are all different from... Uh, all right, some contemporary issues in interpretation. Just want to um, touch on these a little bit, and um, so you know that there are some other approaches to interpreting scriptures. As a matter of fact, several of these actually use the approach I just talked about, but they bring in some additional ways of thinking through things. Um, I can't evaluate these today because there's not really time for that. Um, the, it will raise some questions for you. Um, it will raise questions that you probably have already wondered about and asked anyway, so there won't be anything new here. The, uh, my encouragement is wrestle through these issues with one another. That's part of what a church is about. When questions come up and we're kind of wondering and something doesn't make sense, Chris walked us through this path this way. He does this thing. It does not answer all my questions. There's still some stuff I'm confused about. It doesn't answer certain things. Wrestle through these things. So when the questions come up, when there's other approaches to Scripture, um, talk about them. I mean, God is not afraid for us to be able to bring questions before things and to examine the word and wrestle with things. His, his word is there. So let's walk through it together. And when there's questions, let's ask each other. And if you have questions about these, I would be more than happy to sit down and give you my opinion and, and where I don't have an opinion or where I'm not really sure yet. Um, I can do that for you. So a couple things. Um, first one, and the first two here really we don't use because they're don't really understand the scriptures as being God's inerrant word, but one is a redaction hermeneutic. And basically, that, that version, they won't be up here, you can just write that down, redaction. Basically, they look at scripture, and basically, scripture is a book written by people. And we have to figure out what really is true. So the way we do that is we just start tearing off everything from the scriptures that you can tell are just people's thoughts, getting down to the heart of things. So that's mostly done with the New Testament, that there's a truth about Jesus that is encrusted with all sorts of stuff that the church and later generations added on to scriptures. And so what we have to do is we have to strip off the miracles, strip off things that we don't think Jesus would have done. Jesus really wasn't thinking that progressively at that point in life, so anything that he says that's too far advanced in theology, take that off, and you strip it all down, and we're going to get down to the real Jesus in the text. So how many have heard that approach? It's, it's in magazines, newspapers, people talk about it all the time. It's just stripping everything off to get down to the core of what we know to be true. Um, that understanding, by the way, is just um, its kind of a radical, liberal hermeneutic. Um, it rejects large portions of Scripture as coming from God, and basically it just says, let's get to the, the, the things that we can know for sure. Um, it does not hold the inerrancy of Scripture, so we don't, we don't follow that, that approach. Another older approach that was particularly common in medieval times is an allegorical hermeneutic. Basically, they believe that all of Scripture is not taken at face value. It's all kind of a code, in a sense. And so it's all allegorical. In other words, everything that's in there actually has a different meaning. And you've got to come up with that. So they'll come up with crazy ideas. Micah, Pastor Micah talked about that when he talked about parables. They'll come up with these parables, and they'll come up with all sorts of wild stories about what the parables mean. 
Um, they'll look at stories in the Old Testament, and they'll say they didn't really happen, but they're a picture of this, and they'll come up with some crazy thing. So um, allegory. And um, the problem with that is everybody comes up with a different answer. You can read uh, from some of the guys in medieval times that all um, did their interpretation of the same passage. They will all come up with something completely different from one another because everybody's got their own idea. Of, you can come up with some pretty crazy stuff. Is there allegory in the Bible? Yes, there is. Are there types in the Bible, like Joseph being a type of Christ? Yes, there is. Are there metaphors in the Bible? Sure there are. There are symbols, all sorts of But not the whole scripture. Um, for the most part, the scripture, you just take it at face value for what it is, because that's the way God intended it. Okay, here's uh, three other approaches that are more common and that we will wrestle with and that exist among us and are in churches that we would attend to. A couple of them. One is the redemptive mo- movement hermeneutics. Redemptive movement hermeneutics. Um, it's primarily trying to address what things in Scripture are cultural for just that time and which things are transcultural, in other words, things that are for all times. So when the Scriptures talk about women wearing head coverings, was that just for that time or is that for all times? So it's really trying to wrestle with the cultural aspects of God's Word. Um, statements, commands, etc., can be taken at face value, this, this view would hold. They would do the grammatical, um, historical method, but... When we bring those into our own time and culture, they need to be seen, they would say, through a redemptive lens, which sees movement in the texts towards a position that's not fully seen in our word. By that, what I mean is, particularly the New Testament, perhaps some of the things that God was trying to communicate are not fully formed. We don't get the, we don't get the end product. That there was change and adjustment being made in some of the social things that the Bible was addressing, and we don't get the end result of it. And we have to look at how God was moving through Scripture in those areas, and then look ahead to see here's where it was going to, um, ultimately. They, uh, they believe that Scripture does not necessarily present a finalized ethic on everything. So we don't necessarily stop where the Bible stops, but we look at the entire flow of redemptive work in scriptures to see where things are taken. So on the issue of slavery, for instance, the the Old Testament talks a lot about it. Um, There was slaves in the Bible in the Old Testament. Um, There's a shifting and changes about approach to slavery in the New Testament. Ultimately, slavery is not a good thing, right? So where was the Bible ultimately going? Even if we don't get the full picture, where was it actually going? And they'll look at that to try to determine which things in the culture apply and don't apply. The value of that is that they're trying to honestly wrestle with what do we do with the cultural things and social things in the Bible that somehow don't, sometimes don't make sense to us, that we don't understand, we don't know what to do with them. Are we being taught to do them, or are they things just for that time? They're trying to answer that question. A second hermeneutic is called the spiritual interpretation. And that view basically looks at and says, God, the Holy Spirit, is going to teach you the text. So don't worry about all this other stuff. Just read it like I said you did, and it's going to teach you something. It's looking at God's word as purely a personal thing. It's going to speak to you personally, which ultimately we believe it does, right? But that's the whole focus. So you just read the text, listen to the Holy Spirit, and he's going to bring it for what it means to you personally. And that's what we look at, and that's what we're looking for. Um, we all do that to some degree, and part of that's correct because it wants to make sure we listen to the Holy Spirit. Um, the issue is you can come up with a lot of different thoughts about that. How many have ever read a verse and, it, and the Spirit impacted you and you were touched by it, and then later on you discovered that the verse meant something totally different than what you thought it did, but you were impacted by the Spirit? How many have had that happen? Most of us have had that happen. Was God speaking to you? I think he was. 
Was that what that verse was about? Maybe not from the grammatical historical method. Probably not. Was the Holy Spirit using it to work in your life and teach you something? The answer is yes. This approach, though, would kind of look at that's really the only way we approach it. It's just the Bible is meant to speak personally into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's what it does. So each of us just do that. And we don't need to worry about some of the other things. So whatever the Holy Spirit reveals and shows, um, the scriptures are about making impact on our hearts. That's it. And so let the Holy Spirit do that. And then the third one is that the Bible is God's word in that it contains the truth, but not, might not be all true. And this is in conservative evangelical churches. It's a, it's a, it's, people are struggling with this today. Um, and churches are, are wrestling with this or fighting over or dividing over it. And that view is that God's word that we have may not be all like it's presented, but that God communicates truth through it. So, for instance, the story of Jonah may not be true, but God put that in there because he wanted to communicate a truth to us. So they're still focusing on getting to truth, but they're saying what we have presented to us may not necessarily be true. All the stories about Jesus may not be true, but as we read it, there's truth in it. Um, so there's the, the, the desire there is that they're trying to get to the truth. Um, and, and, but there's a the problem with that is just uh, the Bible does not present itself as that, but that is an um, approach to Scripture that is very, very common today, um, and churches that we'd be a part of are struggling with that one. Um, God's trying to, they still believe God's speaking truth, and there's truth there, but it may not be um, encased, it's encased in some things that may not be true. As I said, all these things try to bring something important to bear on our understanding of scriptures. Um, and we have to kind of wrestle through what we do with those things. So what do we do with the cultural stuff? It's a hard question, isn't it? What do we do with that stuff? Um, what do we do with, I want the Holy Spirit to speak to me, but I also want to know, I need to understand the text. We're told to study it and know it well, so I need to do that as well. Um, there's lots in Scripture that just don't seem to make sense, and there's some crazy stories, and, um, and yet um, so we want the truth in there, and yet we want to hold on to the truth as well. Some of the dangers of these, and not necessarily, but they can be, is that it struggles, um, they press on the issue of inerrancy. Um, they have to do with God's intent in speaking sometimes. Um, there's a fair amount of subjectivity to it and speculation, which can be, doesn't have to be, but those are struggles and problems that we have about it. As I said, I would love to dialogue about these. There are some books out there that, that actually teach these approaches, um, and there's other things out there that evaluate them. I um, encourage you to look at that. I would be more than happy to wrestle through those. Um, it's a great discussion for us. I believe if we do it with a heart to hear God's word, and we come together as a church saying, we really want to know what God has to say to us, and we're going to wrestle through this. If we're doing that, even wrestling through these hard issues, um, even though I might be very opinionated about where I stand on them, um, God will get us to places moving closer to him. If our hearts are right and moving forward on it. The final step in understanding God's word, we mentioned it last week, is application. Application. How should I respond to what God has said? Um, how should I respond to what God says? We ask him. We're waiting on him. We're reading. We're trying to study well and read well. Um, ultimately, what am I supposed to do when God actually brings the truth on and says, this is for you? After all that work, God says, this is what I want you to hear. This is what the truth that you're supposed to bring out of this. How do we respond to what God has said? James 1.22 we're supposed to be hearers, not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. This is the whole point of it. It's not just knowledge. If all we get is knowledge, we're a Pharisee. Um, Jesus had hard words for those who had just knowledge and had not touched their hearts. 
reading, studying, interpreting, wrestling with one another um, through the hard text is of no profit at all to us individually or as a church body if it does not get us to change, to, to some kind of change that God wants to communicate to us. It's supposed to lead to application in doxology. Doxology means praise. It's giving praise, bringing it back to God. It's supposed to lead to action and to praise. It's supposed to lead to heart change and worship. And if our study and our work doesn't get us to that place where it gets into my heart and, and, and God's able to get a hold of me and begin to shape me and show himself to me and it results in praise and worship, I missed it. I need to go back. I missed it. Somehow along the way, I missed it. It's just become knowledge. So we go back. It's always about making us more like Jesus. always about getting us focused back on him. How does it make me more like Jesus, and how does it exalt Christ in my life? That's where it's supposed to bring us. And if it doesn't get us there, then we go back and look at it again. Where am I missing? What am I not getting? How have I not been listening to what the Lord had to say to me? Because that's where it's supposed to bring us, to places of worship, to places of praise, and to places of change. Alan, um, you can bring um, Daniel and Janice. Come on back up. Um, I have an assignment um, for you for next week. What I'd like you to do is come next Sunday, or if you come Saturday, come Saturday. You can come both. You'll get two different sermons. Um, <laughs> bring a couple verses together. So um, don't, don't do more than three because it'll be too long. Um, one to three verses, that, but not like separate passages, like one passage. Something that touches you this week, and you're reading... If there is a verse or a couple of verses that touch you this week, bring them next Sunday. Um, or maybe it's something that's touched you before and nothing touches you this week. That's okay. You know? um, bring them with you, and we are going to practice um, God's revelation and our response, hearing God's word, responding in worship. And so there's going to be chances for you just to stand up and read your verses. We're not doing any commentary. We're not interpreting. We're not going to share about them. We're just going to read God's word, um, lots of it. And we're going to have lots of chance to respond and praise it. So next week, um, bring those with you. Hebrews tells us that um, ultimately, what's God's greatest revelation? It says in Hebrews chapter 1, he reveals himself and speaks to us in his son, in Jesus himself. The, the, the elements behind me on the communion table and in the back there are reminders that um, Christ gave his life for us. And he brought new life and he opened up the Holy Spirit to us. And he reveals all that God is because he himself is God. That is our greatest revelation. That is our focus of our attention and the one we want to pay attention, even as we worship um, this morning. The table is open if you know the Lord. Um, while we're singing, there's a prayer table um, over by the window there. And um, if you have a prayer request, I encourage you, you can just get up while we're singing, go over there and write it on the card. Um, if you do that, take one out so you can pray for somebody else. That's how that works. And encourage you as we worship. Lord, thank you for this, uh, this morning. Thank you for even your written word. And although sometimes it can be hard to understand, there's things we don't get. Um, we, we are desperate for your voice to speak into a, this world. So thank you for it, that we may be good readers and good studiers, and then together as a community we will um, be able to hear your instructions for us. Um, be exalted in our worship, in Jesus' name. Amen. You my heart finds rest, O oh Lord, in you I lay down my worries, my soul thirsts.
heart looks to you. My 